Hello and welcome to the Energizing Transitions podcast. In this podcast, I, Varun and my co-host Yash have wide-ranging discussions with experts in the field of climate change and energy. We explore the challenges and opportunities faced by developing countries as they transition to low-carbon economies and the role of technology, financial markets and public policy in driving the energy transition. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Abhishek Malhotra. Abhishek has extensive experience as a researcher in the field of energy and public policy. Just last year, Abhishek received his PhD from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology ETH Zurich. His doctorate focused on technological change in the energy sector as a driver for low carbon development and the design of public policies to enable this change. Abhishek has authored several publications in esteemed journals such as Joule Energy Policy on the topic of energy transition and has also co-authored a report for the UNDP on uh, de-risking renewable energy investments. Abhishek has also worked as a consultant at the World Bank. And prior to his studies, Abhishek completed his master's uh, in energy science and technology from ETH Zurich, during which he interned at the United Nations Development Program and the International Renewable Energy Agency. Abhishek holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi. And uh, in 2020, Abhishek returned to his alma mater, IIT Delhi, as an assistant professor at the new School of Public Policy. And of course, both Varun and I know Abhishek personally and professionally. We made our first acquaintance with him in one of the lectures at ETH on uh, battery storage technology. Abhishek supervised my first project at ETH. And now, because our research interests align quite well, Abhishek and I are also working together on a research project at IIT Delhi that aims to map the ecosystem of clean energy innovation in India. And primary objective of this research being to support the development of next-gen clean technologies and inform the arena of public policy on how to better foster clean energy innovation in India. Thank you, Abhishek, for joining and taking our time to do this. We are very glad to have you here with us. Sure. Thank you for that thorough and kind introduction. I'm excited to be here. How has it been uh, returning to your alma mater in this new role? It's been nice, actually. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty. So it had been a while since I had uh, not lived in India. I was in Switzerland since seven years before that. But I think any uncertainty I might have had was totally overshadowed by what has gone on in the world in the past nine months. So I've been mostly working at home. But it has been better than I expected. It's been mostly a seamless transition. I'm working on topics, some of which are just a continuation of what I was doing at ETH, some of which so, and um, others which I am very excited to work on. So it's been three months so far, but it's been pretty good. So tell us a bit more about your new role and IIT's new School of Public Policy. Yes. Um, so the IIT Delhi School of Public Policy is something that has been recently established. It's only been two years now. Uh, the head of the school is Professor Ambuj Sagar. Uh, right now, we are six people at the school. And uh, broadly, the school aims to achieve certain things. One, it aims to be a center for research when it comes to science, technology, and public policy, when it comes to questions related to not only India, but also other developing countries and um, society. 
uh, in a broader sense. Second, it aims to be a center for training the next generation of public policy scholars and professionals in India, particularly when it comes to questions around science and technology, which I feel is lacking at the moment. So there are some places that are doing that, but there's certainly room for more. Uh, right now, we're focusing on certain core topics. So one, we are focusing on energy and environment. We're also focusing on science and technology in agriculture. We're focusing on data and internet. And uh, we hope to expand in other regions, in other sectors as well, uh, particularly health, urban planning, transport. So um, we're rapidly growing. We're currently hiring um, faculty at all levels. So it's really exciting to be a part of this and really exciting to be part of the story as the school grows and evolves and um, to be able to contribute to it. I feel it, it's certainly great that um, that this is happening at IIT Delhi. There's, as, you, as you mentioned, there is certainly need for more uh, premium institutes, at least in India, to start looking into uh, science, tech, the nexus of science, technology and policy together uh, to inform better policy making for all the key focus areas that you define, especially when it, when it comes to energy and environment and, uh, and agriculture. So now we'll uh, shift the discussion to the next section, which will basically focus on some of your work on your thesis, your experiences, uh, and more questions which are central to public policy making and technological change for low carbon development. The technological advancements and rapidly declining costs of low carbon technologies have been a key enabler of the energy transition. You have called technological change in the energy sector a bridge between development and climate in your doctoral thesis. And that has really stuck with me. Can you elaborate on this? So energy has been at the heart of the economy, right? Since if you talk about the industrial revolution that was powered by coal and steam, since then, a lot of progress has been made in terms of uh, unlocking new sources of new and cheaper sources of energy, which in turn have unlocked all kinds of services. So if you think about electricity, if you think about oil, if you think about the recent economic boom in the US when it comes to fracking. So energy use and development are closely interlinked. And I truly believe that uh, the current transition that the world has to make has to be seen as an opportunity. There are some profound changes that will happen in the way that we produce, store, distribute, consume energy. And of course, that comes at a cost because a lot of these technologies and ways of organizing the energy sector are new and untested. So there have to be costs that have to be borne, but I would rather see them as investments because there is an opportunity to establish entire industries around these technologies and particularly for emerging economies which are some of the fastest growing contexts when it comes to energy use and thus they form the biggest market for some of these technologies uh, they can definitely take this opportunity to establish industries around these technologies to create jobs uh, and not only merely deploy and use them so that can be a driver for more ambition because we all know that we need to be very ambitious and the scale and the rapidity with which this transformation needs to take place is unprecedented. Hopefully that can help build ambition, but at the same time, not only push 
action when it comes to decarbonization, but also benefit from it. Um, and not only benefit, but do it in a more equitable and just manner. So those are the kind of things that I'm interested in and would like to explore more in my research. Right. And in your doctoral thesis for your PhD, you focused on policy making for low carbon development and how public policy is crucial, is a very crucial aspect to bring about the technological change that um, that is necessary to shift major economies in the world from a high carbon uh, pathway to a low carbon pathway. Can you talk a bit more about uh, the role of public policy in technological change? And um, also building on that, talk about how smart policy making is necessary when it comes to uh, the energy transition. I feel like one of the best examples that one has to talk about when one talks about the role of public policy in technological change and uh, smart policy design, you have to talk about China. You have to look at the tremendous progress that they've made from which not only they, but the world has benefited. So, of course, a lot of renewable energy technologies, even though they find their origin in Western contexts, so solar PV, for example, was something that was developed in labs in the US, in Japan, initially got its push from uh, policies in Germany and Japan, initially expanded exponentially because of policies in Germany. But then China was a country that really um, capitalized on this opportunity to um, scale up its ambition and to really ensure uh, that they localize manufacturing of solar PV, which really helped bring down its costs. And they did it in a smart way. They did it in a way uh, which combined several measures. So they made sure that entrepreneurs who had been educated in industrialized countries, in Germany, in the US, in Australia, came back, took that knowledge with them to China, um, used it together with the kind of incentives that the government was offering um, when it comes to low-cost finance for setting up of industry, export credits, access to logistics, really making life easy for somebody who wants to set up a plant and export solar cells or modules. Um, and the results are for everybody to see. We have some of solar PV represents one of the cheapest ways with which we have ever produced electricity. And a lot of credit goes to that, of course, to some extent to Germany, who really bore the initial costs uh, through their feed-in tariff and created this market for solar PV that did not exist at all and would not have existed if they had not created that space for it to grow and flourish and thrive. But also on China, um, who really took up the technology and um, scaled it up and brought it costs down, and now everybody can benefit from that. So that is a very good case study to really understand the role that policy can play in driving technological change. And um, we can learn a lot from that and try and replicate that in other contexts and in other technologies. But of course, we cannot draw a one-to-one -one parallel of what was done for the case of solar PV. So we need more work to understand what works what doesn't, and how do some of these things that China did need to be adapted to different technologies, to different contexts, to kind of replicate that success story uh, across the board. And have there also been specific cases or any specific case that comes to your mind 
uh, which did not work out so well, where uh, policy making was not that well informed, and um, you know it just implied huge costs without resulting in much uh, gains. I think there are loads of examples and loads of examples that do not get talked about because I guess that we as a society just like to talk more about the successes and not the failures. So if you talk about maybe fuel cell electric vehicles and the kind of ideological belief that a lot of large automakers and countries had in them, I'm thinking about Japan here who invested lots and lots of money in the 90s and 2000s and until recently um, which really did not benefit uh, them as much as they would have imagined but in the meantime in parallel lithium-ion batteries made tremendous progress and have totally outpaced any kind of progress in uh, fuel cell electric vehicles um, so that is the nature of technological change, right? There is a lot of uncertainty. It's very hard ex ante to project what will work and what will not. So ideally, you want to spread your bets. You want to have a wide net, monitor technologies constantly, um, try and understand how the technologies work, what are the drivers for their cost reduction, what are their markets like, where is the potential, and then based on that, make an educated guess on, okay, this technology is probably something that we can bet on. Currently, I look at the hype surrounding hydrogen, and I wonder if the hype actually matches reality. So of course, yes, I do believe that hydrogen will play an important role, but probably not as big a role as some of the hype suggests. So we will see how that pans out, but... Um, I guess some of this is inevitable. Every technology, every new development has its boom-bust cycle. But as policymakers who have to operate within constraints of time, of budget, of political space within which to maneuver, I guess you have to be more smart about, about not just believing the hype, but uh, making more informed policy decisions. I think your observation about uh, fuel cells was a really interesting one because uh, it just follows last week's uh, plunge of the Bloom Energy stock. So you talked about China, which uh, brings me to experience rates and uh, some of the work that we did together for your uh, most recent publication on uh, accelerating low carbon innovation, which explores differences in uh, technologies, experience rates or cost declines based on which you derive implications for policymakers as well as uh, climate and energy models. So I wanted to ask you how tech-specific characteristics and their use cases govern smart policy making. That's a tricky question. And that is a very big question and something that I hope to contribute to as I move forward. But one thing that I talk about in my paper is a narrow aspect of that, right? So basically what we did was we looked at different clean energy technologies and uh, we looked at their experience rates, where Varun helped quite a bit in collecting all that data and recording it in a systematic way. So thank you for that. But uh, the idea was to look at how different technologies have differed in terms of how fast they have progressed uh, looking back. So some technologies like solar PV or LEDs have shown extraordinary cost reductions 
for every doubling of capacity, they have shown 20% cost reductions, which is amazing. But other technologies, for example, nuclear power, have been quite disappointing. In fact, for a long period of time, in certain contexts, the cost for nuclear actually went up with its increasing deployment. So what we wanted to do was understand why. What determines this, um, the learning rates of different technologies and uh, why do they differ? So we looked into the literature and there was some, some insights that we could already find uh, based on studies that had been done. So, for example, a lot of modeling studies talked about design complexity of technologies and how that influences how fast uh, technologies progress down their learning rates. The idea being that the more complex a technology, and by complexity, I mean, imagine a technology which has lots of components which are highly interlinked to each other. So if you try and optimize one part of the technology, it's really hard to predict how that will influence the functioning of other components uh, because of the complexity of the system. So there is a lot of risk, a lot of uncertainty, so a lot of trial and experimentation that is required and a lot of learning by doing. So you deploy the technology, see what works and what doesn't, and based on that, uh, tinker with the design and then um, incrementally improve the performance. Because these technologies are inherently very hard to model theoretically or simulate in a lab. Some examples being nuclear power, for example. Another example, to a lesser extent, uh, being complex is uh, something that Varun knows quite a bit about, lithium-ion batteries, where some of these thermal, mechanical, and electrical interactions within a cell can be very difficult to model from first principles. So typically you test these things in a lab and use those to calibrate your models and then try and simulate. So there's a lot of learning by doing. So because of all this inherent uncertainty, progress becomes much more difficult and the product development cycle becomes much longer. So the, by, by the time you deploy these technologies, collect the data, try and make sense of it, it is a slow incremental pro process. And this is in contrast with other technologies which are relatively more simple in their design, uh, where the complexity is not so much in the design. So they're relatively easy to model and simulate in a lab or under experimental conditions. And whatever complexity there might be, might be there in the manufacturing process, which is much more easier to deal with because that is within the confines of your manufacturing facility. There are conditions that you can control very well. And typically you also benefit quite a bit from economies of scale. Uh, so that's one thing. So that has enormous implications for how innovation occurs in these technologies and how fast you can expect them to progress. That's one aspect. The other aspect that we talk about, and I'm going to be brief here, is um, how much you can standardize the technology. So if for a particular technology, you have a very standardized design, you can basically deploy them everywhere. And um, when you calculate the experience rate, every single deployment matters when it comes to learning and feedbacks and cost reductions. But if you contrast that with technologies that uh, do not work the same way in every application or every context and need to be adapted to the specificities of that, uh, of that context, whether that be 
because of different user needs, because of different environmental conditions, because of different policies or regulations. A good example here might be biomass power, where the core operation principle is simple and pretty much the same. You take biomass, you burn it, you use it to heat up your steam and run a turbine and produce electricity. But the design is highly dependent on the kind of feedstock or the biomass that you're burning in the first place. So depending on its moisture content, depending on its chemical composition, the ash content, um, the boiler design pretty much changes and your operating parameters also change based on that. So the learnings that you get from one context based on one feedstock or one type of biomass are not 100% applicable when you take it to a different place. So if you have a lot of experience as a company burning woody biomass from forestry in Nordic countries, if you want to come and deploy that technology in a place like India, where probably the primary feedstock would be agricultural residue, you basically probably can take some of those learnings from the previous context, but in a lot of ways, you have to start from scratch and redesign your entire thing. And that slows down progress. So those are the kind of things that we talk about in the paper and what we can learn from them in terms of what we can expect from different technologies. And second, also in terms of what we can do to help some of these technologies uh, progress faster down their learning curve. Yeah, thanks for this. I mean, this is uh, an incredibly well-explained framework to make sense of probably all the renewable energy technologies that one can think of when it comes to uh, when it comes to low carbon development and i i would like to ask you one specific question on one specific technology which is uh, uh, ccs carbon capture and storage or ccsu which is uh, coupled with utilization um, many people in the world believe that ccs is extremely important when it comes to meeting uh, Paris Agreement targets, which is staying well below 2 degrees and even uh, below 1.5 degrees if possible by by uh, 2050. And uh, pinning your hopes on CCS, um, while you know there are discussions all around the world on how to uh, make this happen, people, when it comes to uh, reality, people say that you know CCS is very uh, costly and that is the reason why it's not getting traction. But I think your framework is a good way to kind of put this technology in context and explain the reason behind that. Why is it that uh, CCS, which is which can even be retrofitted to existing plants, may not be the ultimate solution um, that can bring us on a path to um, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees? Can you can you talk a bit about this specific technology? So I would like to say upfront that I am by no means a CCS expert. So most of my research has been mostly focusing on generation technologies. So solar PV, wind, biomass, and storage technologies, lithium-ion batteries. So those are my comfort zones. But CCS, I can talk about it a little bit because I looked into it for this paper particularly. CCS has a few issues. So one... I feel like I do not know um, the underlying process of how these integrated assessment models are made. But my feeling is that often unproved, untested technologies like CCS and BECS, uh, so CCS with the uh, bioenergy, end up being stopgap. So 
whatever you can achieve using existing technologies gets modeled into those uh, models. But whatever the difference is to reach a particular target gets filled up by, let's say, a silver bullet for whatever we can't achieve, which ends up being CCS often. Um, that is my guess. I would have to have more conversations with modelers to understand why an untested, unproven technology plays such a prominent role in so many scenarios. But to me, in a lot of ways, it just seems like grasping at straws and trying to come up with something to reach uh, whatever it might be, a 1.5 or 2 degree target. The second issue is with CCS is, of course, that it is a complex technology. So in a lot of ways, it does resemble a small chemical plant. Uh, so scale really matters. And there are a lot of sequential steps that are needed to go from the flue gases of a power plant to getting the CO2 and extracting it in a form that it can be stored. And those processes, to some extent, several steps in that process, at least, need to be adapted on, uh, based on the characteristics of the flue gas itself. So uh, based on the kind of effluence that you're getting out of your coal plant, besides CO2, if you have a lot of sulfates, a lot of NOx, those are things that need to be dealt with. And that has to be adapted to the specificities of that plant. So within coal, there is a bit of variation, but something that could probably be dealt with. But if you look at all fossil fuel technologies, if you look at coal, if you look at gas, if you look at CCS with uh, biopower, all of those need separate designs for how you will capture uh, the CO2 and extract it and compress it in a way that is transportable and storable. So that is one issue. How do we standardize that? How do we create uh, standardized modules which can be applied across different plants in different contexts so that you can maximize all these spillovers and learnings that you get? The second and maybe even messier issue is related to storage uh, because that is something highly location specific. It really depends on the geology of that place. So whether you can store CO2 uh, underground depends on the makeup of the geology of the place. So although we already have quite some experience uh, from the oil and gas industry when it comes to uh, monitoring and understanding the geology of places. In this particular context, there is a lot of learning that needs to be done so that uh, we can store CO2 safely for an extended period. And again, do we understand the specificities, the location-specific nature of uh, carbon capture and not only storage, but also its long-term monitoring and ensuring that it stays stored? That is something that probably we will not get a lot better at very fast. So I'm not very optimistic when it comes to massive cost reductions uh, in CCS in the coming decades. Your description of technological complexity really struck home because I'm exactly at the part of my thesis where when one thing starts working, everything else breaks. And I think that is 
really one of the key issues with uh, battery modeling. And I wanted to say that the customizability aspect, when I read it in the paper, really helped me understand what a lot of the high-level initiatives in the battery industry are trying to do. I think one of the main things that battery companies are trying to do right now, even, even on maybe just the data aspect, is create a way to really standardize how we look at the data because the timeline for these things is so fast and you need to come up with a cell model, integrate it, test it in a car, get the car out into production, and then get the car out into the real world. And one of the key aspects of that is reducing how much changes every time you put in a new technology into the car. And uh, it's a really great framework to work with. I'm glad that uh, at least somebody found it useful. No, it's certainly a very uh, interesting way to think about, make sense of uh, these technologies. And I, I think I can speak for both Varun and myself, learning about the technology characteristics and how that define the way technologies move forward has been one of the most important learnings uh, for us during this, uh, the course of this uh, master studies. And here we'll wrap up with the first part of the discussion and we'll continue on in the next episode with a more India-specific context.